Welcome to the series, How to Train Your Guide Dragon. This is the guide dog series that I promised that I would be releasing. And I'm not alone because I have a very special guest with me. I have the wonderful, incredible Megan Whalen. Well, thanks, Angie. It's great to be here. You're pretty wonderful and incredible yourself. Aw, thank you. That makes me feel so warm and fuzzy. Oh, good. Okay. So, I think it's kind of obvious <laughs> what we're going to talk about today. We are going to talk about how to train a guide dog. Well, my guide dog. Guide dragon, because, you know, Draco. Draco means dragon in Latin, and Draco is my guide dog. And we're going to talk about the training experience, how it all went, and yeah, let's get started. Alrighty. But first, um, Megan, why don't you tell everybody about yourself? Okay, um, so funnily enough, was terrified of dogs until I was about 11 when I got my first dog from the shelter, and he was a um, little rat terrier named Snickers. Um, and he taught me a lot about patience and training. And um, from Snickers, I then got my first seeing eye dog, a little female German Shepherd named Jade. Um, and since then, I have, um, I'm in the process of training my eighth guide now. Um, half of them have been through programs and half I've trained myself. Um, and I've also had the opportunity to raise and train, um, guide and service dogs for other people over the years as well. Um, and I also, um, have a rat terrier breeding program. Awesome. So it seems like, well, I don't want to say it seems because your life definitely does revolve around dogs and dogs are yes. great and we both love them. And I honestly don't think that we deserve dogs because they're just amazing. They are pretty incredible. Okay. So thank you for telling us about yourself. Let's talk about the mechanics of guide work for those who okay. don't know. To start off. Yeah, sure. Um, so to really oh. simplify um, the mechanics of guide work. Though it is a very um, incredible job that the dogs do and um, you know they they do have to work very hard. The basics of guide work are just asking the dog to extend its body awareness beyond itself. So rather than having a bubble that they're responsible for that's maybe you know three feet tall and I don't know 12 inches wide or whatever I have not measured my dog. Um, we're asking them to extend that bubble to the width of dog and handler and the height of the handler. So um, they will, you know, any, any dog isn't going to just like walk right off a ledge on their own. They're not going to um, walk into a pole. They're not going to walk straight into a wall, things like that. But we're asking them to be aware enough to not only go around that pole for themselves, but for the person as well. Um, it is, of course, a lot more sophisticated than that, but that is the basic of what we're asking them to do, to watch for obstacles that are significantly taller than them. A lot of those things would be like tree branches, low-hanging, uh, like garden flags, things like that, signage. There's a lot of different things that are, you know, not a problem for them typically that we ask them to be aware of. Um, and then they're also responsible for judging situations and not following the command of the handler if they deem the situation to be unsafe. So um, that is sometimes called intelligent disobedience. Um, it really is, it's not even really disobeying, it's just learning a separate set of rules. So if my person tells me to go forward when there's a car coming down the road, I don't go. If they tell me to go forward when there's a car coming, or when there's not a car coming down the road, I do go. So um, even though it appears that they are disobeying the handler, they've actually been strategically taught 
what the response is to a command in different environments and different circumstances. Um, and I guess that's that's the basics of the mechanics. They you know pull in the harness, typically walk at the handler's left side, though they can be trained to work on the right. Um, and then they're also taught to find frequently used uh, destinations um, inside and outside of buildings. They stop for curbs before entering the street. They show you any kind of uh, change in elevation. And um, I, I guess that really simplifies a very complex job, but that would be basically the mechanics of what they're doing. Okay, that's a very, very great explanation. So can you tell us how somebody learns how to walk with a guide dog, essentially? Yeah, so there are a lot of different approaches, but typically I would say the vast majority of uh, private trainers and or programs will initially go out on what's called a Juno walk with the handler. Um, that can be something as simple as just holding onto an empty guide dog harness. The, the trainer will hold on to the front chest strap of the harness and then the uh, prospective client will hold on to the handle. And then the trainer will walk at different speeds and say, what feels comfortable to you? Is this good? Is this too fast, too slow, just right? Um, is this a little too fast, but you could do this? Uh, is this so slow that you feel like you're watching paint dry? You know, ask questions like that to figure out where that person could be content. Uh, and then on top of gauging the pace of what that person prefers, they'll also put different amounts of pull into the harness. You know, does this feel like you're being pulled by a freight train down the sidewalk? Or do you like this hard, steady pull? Does it make you feel like you've got something easy to follow? Would you prefer a lighter pull and a little bit more? Uh, gentle guiding um, and, and dogs can do, you know, there are dogs who pull pretty hard and walk slow. There are dogs that pull very lightly and walk quickly. Um, typically I'd say the faster moving dogs pull a little bit faster, but, or sorry, a little bit harder, but that's not always the case. Um, so that Juno walk is just the initial process of helping trainer and handler figure out what the end goal is for that dog. It can also help them figure out um, if somebody needs a dog who's taller, if if the pull coming from down lower in the harness, if a shorter dog is going to make them feel off balance, or if that height doesn't really matter to them. So yeah, it's basically an empty harness that you hold. Um, the instructor will um, act as the dog and then we'll kind of guide you through what commands to say, like, you know, forward, you know, left, right, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Um, yeah, that is true. It's also not just a chance to tell the instructor what that person needs, but also a chance for the handler to get introduced to the commands um, and to get some experience with how, if the dog's going to need leash corrections, how that can be done, um, how the leash can be used to direct the dog, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So it's a safe way to, for the ha a handler to learn some handling without um, the dog having to go through that stage of like, I don't know what this person wants. I don't get what they're doing. Yep. So Or why am I working for yep. them? Yeah. I've done a guide dog series in our first season, and I interviewed somebody that went through a residential program, somebody who went through a program that did home placements only and somebody who owner trained so being that I did not exactly owner train but hired a private trainer Megan would you want to go ahead and and discuss how privately training is different than going through a program sure um so at least in this case, and it, it can vary, but in, in this case, um, you had the opportunity to select your puppy and know him from the time he was a pup and start to build a rapport with him as well. Since we lived near each other, um, that isn't the case in every private training situation. Sometimes a trainer will select dogs and then raise and train them and then match them to people later on, similar to like a 
a program set up. It's just done privately, yep, but people do in that. our, yeah. So in our case though, um, the really nice thing is that you really had the, not only the time to get to know him as a puppy and to like establish a relationship with him, but you could tell me what things you really wanted. If it was, you know, I know, you know, you really wanted a dog who wasn't going to be very social while he was working. And so I could really address that from early on. Um, you wanted a dog who could walk at a specific pace. And we knew that from the time he was a puppy. So when we went out walking, even as a pup, I could go at the pace he was going to need when he was older. I could customize him based on the needs that you knew you would have. So, um, for instance, if you'd said, I'm going to be uh, moving to Washington, D.C., and I'm going to be taking the Metro all the time, I would have known that I had to expose him to like a lot of trains and things like that. So um, I think that's that's a huge benefit to going the route you took with a young puppy and raising him up is that um, you really got to have a, a ton of input, I could say, um, and I did say very early on, like the biggest struggle is going to be this dog's mouth. He's not going to be real noisy, but he's going to want to eat everything. So we're going to have to work really hard on tools to manage that. And um, you were able to learn about that and get that figured out before you had to learn how to work with him as your guide. And I think that's a huge advantage for both of you that, you know, that first time you had that harness on him and told him to go forward, he knew you, you weren't a stranger that he had to figure out. He just had to realize that now you're not walking in places on leash. He's the one who's uh, looking out for you. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's a really neat experience to be able to be part of that dog's whole puppyhood and watching them grow and learn and become who they're going to be. Right. And that was honestly the best, the best thing that I, that I could have ever done. And if I could, I would do it all over again, honestly. Um, it was very rewarding. And mm -hmm. um, I like the fact that in a way I kind of had a say. Like, yeah, I mean, of course, like, you were guiding me throughout the process, but like, um, I kind of had to say, like, I knew what kind of dog I, I knew what I wanted in a dog, like you said. Yeah. And, um, you knew from the beginning what compromises you might have to make, you know, and the, of course, the hard thing about going this route is that if for whatever reason he hadn't made it, there's not another dog waiting in the wings. No. Where if you go into a program, unless it's a very small program, typically, you know, they can switch out dogs if they need to early on. But, right. So that is the huge risk with something like this. Um, but ideally, if you're very, you know, strategic in the selection of the dog and all of that, um, hopefully it will work out as, I guess, your chances are pretty high. Yeah. But um, I don't even know if I'd say that they're pretty high because that's not fair. But I, I've had great success this way um, with personal dogs and dogs I've trained for other people. Um, and something else I was going to say about that. Oh, not only did you get to pick your puppy, but you got to, uh, you know, do the research and figure out what things were most important to you as far as breed, as far as what kind of breeder you wanted to work with. You got to learn about health testing and the importance of that. Yep. Um, and, you know, I think you, you got to learn a lot more about why what was important rather than just um getting your dog which of course there's zero issue with doing it that way right but um you really really got to have a lot more say and of course like i said with that say comes the risk of it not working right. out of course uh but you know you can bring a dog home from a program too and have it not work right. out so. exactly like there is matches that have failed or there's like um for example not not all the, typically, right, in a program from what, I've never gone through a program, but I just know this because I've talked to you a lot and I've talked to other people. So in guide dog programs, because I've, like I said, because I've talked to you and other people, in guide dog programs, they have a string of dogs and when somebody applies, they at least have two dogs in mind for that person. 
that could work. And if one match does not work, the other match can. And then there are times where they don't have another dog in that within that string of dogs for that person, and they have to go home dogless. That happened mm -hmm. to a friend of mine who went to a program, and she was set to receive her guide, and the dog that they had matched her with did not work for her. So they didn't have a dog for her in that class that could work. You know, they didn't have another match available, so she had to go home dogless. But then mm -hmm. they let her know, we'll let you know when we have a match that works. And then right. they did, and she got her dog, and now her dog is about... I don't know, five, six, I think. And they've been working well, so sometimes that's a thing that happens uh, when you go through a program. And obviously with owner training and privately training, you don't have that option. Your choice would be to right. start over again. Like you would have to start the process mm -hmm. over again. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, there's a lot of consideration to that, right? You've purchased this puppy. Mm -hmm. You've fallen in love with this puppy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and you've paid the trainer to train said puppy. Mm -hmm. So now it's, it's not just like, oh, well, am I going to try again? But what am I, am I in a position that I can keep the puppy who didn't make it? Or am I going to give that puppy back to the breeder? Or do I have a family member who wants to adopt it? Uh, do I have the money to start over do i have the money to purchase another puppy to pay a trainer again to xyz so there is a different type of risk with that you know it's the concern of like what is your plan if this doesn't work and that that is a very uh very considerable risk um so something to consider that just like with the program there's there's no guarantee you'll come out of it with a dog right but at least if you do and you have a trainer who communicates well with you, they will tell you that dog's strengths and weaknesses. You know, I had one dog that I trained and I said, like, the big problem with this dog is going to be reactivity towards other dogs. I can teach her appropriate responses. Um, you can handle her. I'm confident in that. But if something traumatic happens, if a loose dog runs up on her or anything like it probably will be her undoing right and it's um, gonna scar her yeah and so that becomes a decision of well i might never have that encounter in that dog's working career or i live somewhere where there's tons of loose dogs so we better not continue or um you know so it, it's hard like and like you said just just because you go to a program though there's no guarantee you'll come home with the dog and there's no guarantee you'll come home with the right dog. Right. Uh, so, and the hard thing about, I know we're not talking about programs a whole lot here, but the hard thing is that uh, a lot of times the trainers know them very well as working dogs, but they don't necessarily know what it's like to live with that dog because a lot of programs use the uh, kennels, kennels yeah. during training. And yeah. so, so they don't know if that dog is chronically taking stuff off the counters or likes to chew on carpet or, whatever so they're counting on the puppy raisers to convey that information to them and to have uh hopefully you know over the time they were raising that dog to fix it yep. so you know I, I could have going into it said hey uh draco's really great but you got to watch him because he likes to chew on the trim on doors or something like that which he didn't mm -hmm. but you know i i could have given you that information you wouldn't have had to find it out by him doing right. it so right exactly and that's the that's one of the one of the pros of raising a dog is that you know that dog from inside out. Um, yep. Because you've lived with the dog, and not only that, the bond and respect happens a lot sooner. And I'm not trying to say that it doesn't yep. happen in programs. Yeah, there. I mean, there are dogs 
that you bond that you can have a very good bond with once you start working with them if you get them through a program because I remember you telling me that you had a dog like that mm -hmm. so my question to you I know you said that you had one dog that you uh, were talking about that that it was reactive like did you know that from the get-go or did you know that later on as you started working with them she grew into it um so it started to show up around eight months and at that age sometimes it's a phase and sometimes it's mm -hmm. a lifelong thing mm -hmm. um and if it if i'd felt it were a safety concern i would have told the person like this dog can't do the job right um but it was not a problem but i could tell it could become a problem so mm -hmm. um and unfortunately it did become a problem um due to no fault of the handler or anything else. It, they had an encounter with a loose dog and it was enough that um, that dog just was suspicious and concerned. Um, they worked for another couple of years, but just couldn't get through it. So, right. um, and that's, that's a risk you take, um, you know, however you get your dog, anything can happen. Oh no, so, of course. Of course, like that's it's so hard. Yeah, like even even if you go through a program, like you're not you're not guaranteed that your dog won't uh won't come out like I don't know, won't develop reactivity or won't uh or won't work out yeah. or this, that and the other. Yeah, they're they're still just as much dogs as any other no, dog. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, there's Hopefully, and I'd say at least in that case, you don't have that financial burden of um, paying for the raising and training of the next one. Right. But it still can be just as devastating, of no, course. No, yeah, of course. Um, definitely. One thing that people always ask me when I say, well, my dog's privately trained. They always ask what's the cost associated with with um privately training do you mm -hmm. want to um talk about that a little bit yeah so you have the upfront cost of your dog which depending where you get your dog if you go through a breeder if you get the dog from a shelter um you're looking at probably at least five hundred dollars and if you're going through a um, a breeder who does health testing and all of that, which that's a very individual choice, but if that's the path you choose, you're looking at, you know, 1500, 3000 in that range for the dog. And that's just the dog. And then you've got the cost of raising that dog. Um, and depending on your trainer that may be looped into the, you know, the monthly expense of having that dog trained. It depends, but I would say allow for 500 to 1,000 for the first year of raising a dog between vaccines and food. And and then when they're old enough, they'll need their hip and elbow clearances to make sure they're sound enough to do the work. Um, so just that side of it, before you even incorporate the, the training costs, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And then for training, it's realistic to expect to spend I'd say anywhere from 800 to 1500 to 2000 a month mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I know a lot of just general pet board and trains. Um, I know somebody who sent a dog for three weeks and it was $2,700. Right. So like it, it is not cheap and no. it depends on who you go through and how you organize it. But I would say uh, 10,000 is a steal. Yep. Um, I would say anywhere from twenty to forty thousand wouldn't be insane. Mm -hmm. So, because you've got, if the trainer is taking the dog from eight weeks, all the way through and doing all of it, you've got, at minimum, I'd say, probably fifteen months, because that dog has to grow up, mm -hmm. and then they have to be trained. So, um, 
I guess maybe really, really minimum would be 12, 12 months of training if it was a very mature dog and they felt they could start harness work at a year old and that dog was ready by 14 months. But that's very young and I would really, uh, I wouldn't say that's impossible, but a lot of dogs aren't ready for that. No. So, you know, it would be worth spending the extra extra money to have the dog stay in training a little bit longer unless you know it, it all depends on the agreement I've had dogs who went to people who had a lot of experience training and they were comfortable polishing off the end stuff if I could get the dog to the point where it would keep them safe and do the basics they were okay with you know doing that final finesse and letting the dog finish maturing mm -hmm. and that's very individual um, you know those are people I knew and trusted and had rapport with already that wasn't somebody I didn't know well. Mm -hmm. So, um, it really depends on your relationship with the trainer, um, your relationship with the dog, the breed of the dog, the age of the dog, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But it is definitely not a cheap, easy way to get no. a dog for sure. No, absolutely not. Um, even if, yeah, even if you find a breeder who will donate that puppy to you, um, you know, if, if you want the raising and training of your dog donated, then definitely going through a program is the way to go. Right. If you're comfortable with paying for that and having more say in how things are done, um, it's going to be expensive, but the private training then is definitely worth it as well. So there's not a right or wrong way to do mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. There's many different ways to obtain a guide dog. And um, yeah, I've always told people, well, when they've asked me, I said 10,000 and up because <laughs> um, it's yep. not cheap. And to be honest, Dog training, it's not cheap. No. I mean, it's a lot of work that gets put into it, and just knowing how much work goes into the dog, like, it's... Whether you privately train, whether you own or train, whether you go through a program, it's your due diligence to keep up with that training. Like, mm -hmm. the programs... You know, you get a dog for forty thousand to like fifty to sixty thousand dollars, and all that money was just put into that dog and training. And it's just like you should keep up with the training because this was a dog that was trained to to become a guide dog, not to become somebody's glorified pet. That's just the way I see right. it, and that's just my my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. That I think that it's something to definitely consider and think about. Yeah, and there's there's such a nuance to that because, you know, somebody who lives in New York City and commutes and flies all over the world and has a guide dog, that dog is just as important as somebody who wants a dog so they can get out every day and stretch their legs and. Um, even if they're just walking around their neighborhood and not doing complicated work um, and both people went to the same program or both people went through the same trainer, like those dogs are both equally as valuable to their person. And those dogs both um, should, in the case of the private trainer or the program, have been strategically selected to meet the needs of that person. Mm -hmm. So it's likely that that dog who is the, the one that, that the person who just, you know, stretches their legs every day and, you know, needs a, needs a buddy to do that. Um, that dog may not be able to handle New York city. Um, just as the dog who does New York city and flies around the world may go nuts, just getting out and stretching their legs every day. Right. Um, and that's not always the case, but those, those could be two very different dogs who are equally as valuable, um, and that, that's an important thing, too, to realize is that uh, not every guide dog, not only is that not every dog a good match for somebody based on pace and pull, et cetera, but not every dog would thrive in every environment. Yeah. And, and yeah, they can have not enough to do. They can have too much to do. So Okay. So given to the fact that we're talking about dogs and environments and thriving... So do you want to talk about how Good. Draco is exposed to different environments? Yeah, so um, 
when people talk about socializing dogs, it's not just a matter of throwing the whole world at them. It's a matter of paying really close attention to that dog and what their strengths and weaknesses are. If that dog has any sound sensitivity, um, if that dog really, really likes people. Um, so if I have a dog who's incredibly outgoing and wants to greet everybody, we might do working more quiet environments initially just to build up our rapport and um, that dog's ability to listen to me before I'm trying to get that dog not to greet every person that we come across at the farmer's market, for example. Um, so with Draco, I started out with something really easy. We just went to uh, the local farm supply store um, at a time of day when I knew it wasn't going to be super busy. And I could gauge then like, oh, he's, um, there, were, there were a lot of benefits to that. That's somewhere that pets are allowed, but they're not all over the place. So um, as far as because of his age and having not had all his vaccines yet, like, of course, everywhere you go, there's a little bit of risk. But um, you have to weigh, weigh the risks with the benefits. So, you know, we chose places where uh, pets are allowed, but they're not, there's not tons of them all over. So we wouldn't go to like the pet store or the dog park or anything like that, because those are not only are those overwhelming environments, but there's just a much more high saturation of other dogs and the potential for, you know, a young puppy picking up yeah. something. Yeah. So, so we started at the farm supply store. So if he did have an accident, which he didn't, it wouldn't be like, Oh my gosh, it's the first time we've seen something like that. Um, and, we wanted a time of day where there were fewer people, but I could then see like, oh, he's kind of, you know, really excited about people who walk past. So we should really work on focus. Um, and he's kind of interested in like being a little bit mouthy and scavengy with things on the floor. So uh, we probably shouldn't go to an indoor restaurant yet where there might be stuff under tables or whatever. And he might be diving and trying to get to things. So, you know, we did a lot of walks around the neighborhood and worked on focus um, when at times a day when other people would be out walking their dogs to see how distracted he was by other dogs. And then we had the chance to work on him focusing up on me when there were other dogs and other people. Um, and then his first restaurant type outing was to an outdoor restaurant where again, pets are allowed, but they're not all over the place um, so that he could succeed, you know? So it's, uh, he was a very busy puppy. Um, and so I didn't want to go to like a fancy restaurant with him for his first thing and have him expect him to lay nicely under the table and not chew the booth or not do this or not do that. Cause it just wasn't fair to him. Mm -hmm. um, so we slowly built up his experience, his comfort level. You know, our first indoor restaurant was a pizza parlor where it was a very, um, very relaxed environment. It was all tile. So there was no carpet for him to chew on and the benches weren't upholstered. And so, like, those were all things that allowed him to have fewer chances to make decisions that weren't good for him or, or good for me. Um, and we just built things up from there. Okay, well, he did a really nice job waiting in line while we ordered our pizza, and he was a good boy under the table. So now maybe we're ready to go to Culver's where they have carpet and they have upholstered booths, but we're only going to be there for 15, 20 minutes. You know, it's a quicker restaurant. And so um, it's just a matter of for each dog gauging what they need and meeting them where they're at. So like my current puppy is very calm uh, and just falls asleep wherever we go. And so she's been able to do more things early on, but I've also had to be very conscientious of the fact that just cause she can, doesn't mean I want to saturate her and overwhelm her. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, you know, a lot of just really paying close attention to that dog and you can misread a dog as being very calm and have them actually incredibly overwhelmed and shut down. And that's when you have to really watch dogs for stretch signals. Is this dog constantly uh, trying to sniff? Cause that can be a sign the dog is stressed. Is this dog panting and it's not that hot out? Um, are they uh, trying to go hide under every, you know, like every spot that could be like a hidey hole? Are they diving to go like hide under chairs and things like that? Um, is this dog not acting like they normally do? Um, is she panting? Is uh, she licking her lips a lot? Is she yawning a lot? Is she whining a lot? Um, and just really 
if you see those things, it doesn't mean you've failed. It means it's time to step back and give that dog the chance to experience whatever it is that's stressing them out at either a quieter time of day or from a further distance. So, for instance, if my dog was, uh, well, okay, so Draco at the mall, the first time we went to the mall, he was really excited. And uh, he had a very nice heel at that point. His leash manners were really good. But at that place, he was just, like, way overwhelmed. Like, he was so excited to see all the people and all the things. And he was maybe three months old. So it was fine. I wasn't like, oh, my gosh, this dog is broken. I was like, oh, wow, this is too much for him. Mm-hmm. So we found a bench, and we sat down, and we worked on focus. I had treats with me, and I had him sit and gave him a treat and did, you know, had him lay down and just really uh, focused on his attention to me, and then we left. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, oh, gosh, you're overwhelmed. Let's get out of here right away. It was let's back up. And I know you're not freaked out. You're just overexcited. So let's back up where you can handle your enthusiasm. And then next time we come, maybe we can do a little bit more mm-hmm. and a little bit more. Um, and realizing that just because today you want to teach your dog how to sit through a movie doesn't mean they're ready for that. And um, when you're first introducing them to the world, you always have to be ready to abandon ship if that's what they need. Mm-hmm. So don't have your first trip to the grocery store be when you have to buy everything for Thanksgiving dinner. You know, maybe you just need a gallon of milk. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you need nothing and you just go in and walk around the store. Yep. Um, so it's a lot of really just uh, dog training as a whole needs to be, I feel, a very selfless experience. It can't be like well, I don't care how you feel about it. We're getting this done today. It has to be a gradual building of environments, mm-hmm. um, a gradual building of trust, and a constant give and take of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of talk about that dog needs to listen to you, X, Y, Z. Well, yes, I would like that my dog listen to me, but I want him to listen to me because he respects me and because he feels safe with me and he knows that if he's not listening, that I will evaluate and think, well, why isn't this working? This dog always sits when I ask him to. What's different? Mm-hmm. Oh, his paw hurts. It hurts for him to sit. Or the, you know, the ground's too hot. Or he doesn't like that the sidewalk's wet because it just rained. Um, and that doesn't make that a bad dog. That just means that he's an individual who has the things he does and doesn't like. And um, as soon as dog training goes into like, well, I don't care what you like. I'm going to make you do this. Mm-hmm that's when you have dogs who are doing things they can't handle and eventually they crack. Mm-hmm. So um, just that constant uh, building of respect and rapport and really getting to know your dog's signals mm-hmm. for when they're, um, when they're overexcited and when they're overstressed and when they're scared um, because they are, uh, wonderful companions and they can do great work but they need to feel safe and they they need to be um like i said i think respect is just so so important Mm -hmm. so i guess the long and short of it is that taking them into new environments um it really the term socialization is misused and people think of socialization as like i'm going to take this dog everywhere and throw everything at Mm -hmm. it okay, well, we we walked through the farmer's market, we've walked through the mall, we've been to a movie, we've this, we've that. Okay, but what were you doing while you were there? How much were you paying attention to that dog? What did you do at the farmer's market? Did you just pay attention to all the things you could eat? Or were you paying attention to what your dog was doing while you were waiting in line and when you were walking? And were you making sure that dog was comfortable? Because it's not just going there, it's going there and teaching that dog that they're safe and they can count on the person who's with them to make sure that they are safe and that they're content Mm -hmm. um and that's what that's what socialization really is is teaching the dog that everywhere they go it's okay Mm -hmm. it's not just that they've been there it's that they've been there and they did not get over their threshold and they felt safe and they could still do the things they've learned Mm -hmm. absolutely can you talk about the kinds of things that 
a puppy in training needs to be exposed to? Yeah. Um, so I think any puppy, regardless of what their life is going to be like, but especially service dogs, uh, they need to be comfortable on all different surfaces. Um, so for whatever you think of, think of any way it could be different. So, um, you know, not just, okay, well, he's walked on grass and he's walked on concrete. Has he been on gravel? Has he walked on sand? Has he been on bigger rocks that maybe roll around under his feet? Um, has he, um, you know, walked on tile? Okay, cool. But has he walked on like shiny slick tile where he can see his reflection and his paws slip? Um, so covering all those bases and then not just has he been on an elevator, but has he seen a glass elevator? Cause that's totally different. Mm -hmm. Has he, um, been to a movie? Okay, cool. Has he been to a loud movie? Has he been to, um, you know, I'm trying to think of some other really good examples, like um, something like, like Costco where they have big wide aisles and it's easy to move around is different than something like, you know, the little corner market where the aisles are really tight together and that dog's um, leash manners and stuff are so much more important that they stay close to you. Mm -hmm. um, is he able to rest quietly when you go visit friends at new houses can he lay at your feet at your friend's house with wood floor okay awesome can he lay at your feet at your friend's house with carpet without pulling up the carpet um so it's so many big and little things that um to think about and then out on a walk um is he able to heal past people who are coming towards you with or without dogs with bikes with strollers mm -hmm. um is he comfortable if somebody's walking half a block behind you with a stroller um, in the same, you know, going in the same direction as you? Um, how does he feel about walking past somebody shoveling or mowing the lawn, mm -hmm. um, people playing basketball in their driveway, all those things. So it's trying to think of as many situations that you never know when you'll encounter and getting the chance to tackle those like, Oh, great. It's, Thursday morning, the garbage truck is coming in 10 minutes. We're going to go sit outside and watch it go up our street. Mm -hmm. And if, if this freaks my dog out, we're going to go back inside and maybe watch through the window or maybe just go around the corner of the house and let the dog hear the noise of it and just build that up. And maybe next week we can watch it through the window and maybe the week after that we can sit in the driveway, you know? And so if a dog startles at something once, that doesn't mean, oh gosh, this dog can't be a, a service animal because he was afraid when he saw the big machine pick up the garbage can. Like, what did he do? Did he like completely panic or was he just like, whoa, what's that? And then the next house he watched it was like, oh, that, I saw that before. Mm -hmm. So um, I think just uh, really paying attention to how they respond and if that response is improving. Um, mm -hmm. And uh Sometimes that, that can take a while, and there are some things that some dogs just aren't cut out for it, whatever the reason may be. You might have a dog who just can't help himself and has to chase squirrels, and no matter what training you do, that doesn't stop. Well, that's not a dog that should be responsible for anybody's safety. Right. That may be a dog who could do, um, you know, that dog may be able to ignore squirrels when he's healing, but maybe can't ignore squirrels when he's the one who's choosing the, you know, the pulling into the harness and being the leader. So, you know, that's a possibility where, okay, well, this dog is exceptional, but he wants to chase squirrels and he's going to drag his person down the sidewalk to do so. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe that dog can't be a guide dog, but that if the dog can handle himself walking past squirrels, just healing on leash and in every other way is exceptional, that dog might still be able to do um, some other type of service work, mm -hmm. you know? So like it's, there's just so many nuances. Mm -hmm. Good explanation. Um, can we touch on like the process of picking a puppy? Yeah. Um, so the test that I use to pick a puppy is the um, Volhart puppy aptitude test. 
and there are a series of 10 exercises that the puppy is put through and they're ranked from one to six on each of those. Uh, one being dogs who are going to be really higher drive, a lot more of a handful, um, very active, engaged dogs. A lot of these dogs are like police dogs, um, you know, very active, like herding dogs on the farm, things like that. Dogs who just need to be really busy um, and need a pretty much constant job mm-hmm. and or a very experienced handler. Mm-hmm. Um, the sixes are going to be dogs who are very disengaged, are going to be more independent. Um, and a lot of dogs like that would be higher on the more towards the six end of things are going to be like livestock guardian dogs um, or dogs who just kind of aren't necessarily engaged with the family. Maybe the dog who just like wants to, you know, curl up in the corner and watch life go by. So typically a good service dog, a well-rounded dog um, for kind of the average range. If I were, if I were picking dogs and I was going to train them and match them later, I would be looking for high threes to fours for my dogs. So um, the, the test itself doesn't say to do this, but it helps me to think. So what I do is I do all the tests and then I add up all the scores and I divide it by 10 Mm -hmm. and that'll tell me like, Oh, this dog's a 3.9. So what that's almost exactly a perfect four. So what brought that dog down? Okay. Well, if it was prey drive, um, that might be really good if I need a dog to retrieve. Um, if it was, uh, you know, if they got like, if they scored lower for like sociability with new people, well, that's maybe okay because, um, I don't need my service dog to want to be friends with the whole world. I just need them to not be afraid of the whole world. So, um, so some of the tests are, uh, like popping open an umbrella suddenly. How does the dog handle that? How does the dog respond to a loud sound? Um, how does that dog like, and this is typically done with puppies, but you can do it with older dogs as well and modify it a little bit. Um, if I get down, like kneel down and clap my hands. Does the puppy follow me? Um, how does, if someone just brings the puppy down and plunks him in the middle of the room, like what does he do? Does he just like freeze and go crap? Where am I? Or is he like, Oh, what is this new place? Does he chase, uh, like a crumpled up piece of paper if I throw it across the room. And then when he does chase it, does he bring it back to me or does he start shredding it or does he sniff it and walk away from it? Um, you know, so all sorts of things. And, there's a very comprehensive guide on if your puppy responded this way, like score him as a two. Um, there's their tolerance to pain, which sounds a lot more violent than it is. You just gently pinch them between their toes and check to see how long before they respond. You know, you apply slight pressure on the paw pad or not the paw pad, sorry, the webbing between the toes and slowly increase that pressure and see like how many seconds it takes them to respond. And, in that case, the ones who respond quicker are um, going to score higher. So they're going to be more like the four or fives. So they are a little bit more sensitive where um, a dog who like is just kind of, oh, whatever, is going to score lower on that because they have, they're just, they're less likely to instantly respond to correction. Um, they're more likely to be a little bit hard-headed and kind of want to do their own thing. Um do their own thing isn't really what I mean because that would they're going to be more driven to to do a task so um that might be really good in some cases with a guide dog because I personally am very stubborn and dense and my dog might stop somewhere they don't normally stop and I might tell them forward five times you think oh yeah I taught you to stop if it's not safe something must have changed here so um there's just a whole bunch of different angles to look at and then considering like like I said a typical service dog is threes and high threes lows fours um, but I've also trained like high twos um, and those dogs can be really good for um, an experienced handler who likes a lot of personality and enjoys the challenge of kind of the battle of wills um, and so like a lot of like Dobermans are going to be more in that range. The Shepherds might be a little more in that range. Um, just the more, the stronger working line dogs are going to score 
on the lower end, like the ones, twos, threes, and then the kind of more, I'm putting it in quotes, uh, biddable dogs are going to be more like the threes, fours into the low fives. Okay. If you remember, do you want to talk about a little bit how uh, Draco's evals went and what his scores were and stuff like that? Sure. So he was... Do you remember his exact score? I don't. Uh, you said he was in between threes and fours, but I don't remember if it was low fours and high threes or what it was. Yeah. I want to say he was like a like a 3.7 or 3. Okay, so you said Draco was between a 3.7 or 3.6, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, what brought his scores down uh, was, was his little mouth. So he was um, very, uh, he was unfazed by new things in the environment, like when we popped up the umbrella, um, dropped a metal bowl, those things didn't startle him at all. He just kind of was like, oh, what's that? Okay, let me go check it out. Um, when I called him to get him to follow me, he did follow me and then mouthed my hands. Uh, when I did the any of the tests that involved having my hands on him, he was putting his mouth on my hand. Um, and then when we threw the little paper ball to see what he did, he went over and he mouthed that. Um, and he also mouthed the towel that we roll up a towel and tie a string around it and pull it kind of in like jerky motions to see what they do with that. And he did go up to that and mouth that, but he didn't like maul it or anything. He just went up and was like, what's this? I put my mouth on it. What's that? I put my mouth on it. So um, we knew right away that his mouth was going to be his weakness um, in that he would want to chew on things and might be a little bit nippy and um, just his way of checking everything out would be to put his mouth on it. And that has continued to be true of him uh, from puppyhood into adulthood. So, but other than that, he's a very, you know, um, very good boy. He's very smart. He's very eager to learn. He's very quick to recover if he's startled. So uh, he's, he's a great dog. Yes, he is. And wasn't there one test where like you, had put him on his back. Yes. And while he was on his back, he's like, that's okay, but while I'm laying here, I'm just going to put your whole wrist in my mouth. Yes, like, so. I think he kind of, like, fought a little bit, and then he just settled. Yeah, yeah, he was kind of like, why are we doing this? Why? Okay, well, if, if I have to be here, I'm just going to eat your wrist. So <laughs> so he's he's got a little bit of a stubborn streak, but he is able to accept... Uh, guidance if Tandler is I don't even want to say firm but just very consistent mm-hmm. yeah he's definitely a dog that requires black and white handling um, yes but you know like you need to be on top of him otherwise he will have his own agenda and want to do what he wants um, yeah but um, I was gonna say, I'll never forget when he walked out of the room with his breeder, and he was just, mm-hmm. he didn't even, like, go to me or anything. He was just like, oh, what's this? Like, I remember yeah. going straight to the cans and trying to check everything out, and not even yep. going to us until I think you called him. Yeah, he was very, very curious about his environment. Which I liked. I liked the fact that he wasn't, like, very... And he was more curious about the environment rather than the people in it. Um, Yeah. Because to me, that is definitely something I would want. Is I'd rather have my dog be curious about the world around him rather than who's in the room, you know? Um, Yeah, Uh uh-huh. But he's... I think... I remember you describing him as, like, not extremely aloof, but not overly friendly. He was, like, a good middle ground, I guess. Yeah, he's um, definitely very happy to meet people if he's, like, welcome to do so. But it's not his only purpose in life to make friends with the whole world. Yeah, which is what I liked. And not only that, but his training 
So, I mean, it mm-hmm. is it is a bit a part of who he is, but most of it is his training, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with puppy raising, a lot of times there's there's definitely some some opportunities where you allow the public to greet them and stuff because you want to make sure that they have positive interactions with other people and aren't suspicious of people. Um, he had very few interactions with the public because uh, I knew that he could quickly kind of transition from like, oh, people are all right to, oh, I love people. Mm-hmm. So um, the few times I did let somebody greet him, I would either kneel down and just kind of scoop him up and have him lay across my knees so they could greet him, so they could pet him and say hi to him. But I didn't want to give him that chance to, like, initiate that contact. And so um, that was how I allowed occasional interactions, but I didn't let him go up to people ever and say hi to them because I knew with him that that would spill into his lifelong habits of socializing and... um, you and I both don't prefer that kind of dog. No. So. No, I'd rather have my dog just, you know, want me, you know, just be like, yeah, people are nice, but I love my person, and that's just the type of dog that he is. Like, he loves my family, yeah. but at the same time, at the end of the day, he'll want to come back to me and want to be where I am, and I, right. I love that. So, I mean, and even still... Um, even now that he's working for me, when family comes, I let him interact when, um, when he is sitting nicely, um, because he knows that he gets overexcited, he's like, oh my god, but then I'm like, nope, I always have to tell him, do not overexcite him at all, um, if you're gonna say hello to him, he needs to sit, um, if you overexcite him, uh, I can't let you greet him because that is not what I want him to do. Right. So, let's talk about how do you know when the dog is ready for harness training? Um, so some of that is just simply numbers. Um, you want to wait until they're done growing or very close to it um, and until they're like mentally and emotionally mature enough I have put a harness on a dog as young as 8 months old but at that point I mostly was just letting them get used to wearing it and maybe letting them do a little bit of leash guiding maybe very lightly touching the harness some and letting them get used to the feel of it but not putting any heavy uh, pressure on them um, letting, letting them maybe guide for like straightaways down the sidewalk, but it was my responsibility to stop at the curb still to cross straight to find inside and outside and stuff. And, and pulling in the harness was just something that they got to do some, and it was kind of a fun game. Um, but I still only let them pull lightly because they're still young and their joints are still developing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as truly digging into harness training um, and having them understand the responsibility of it I would say no younger than 12 months old and usually closer to probably 15 to 18 months old depending on the breed and the dog Um, and as far as deciding when they're ready it's uh, when they have pretty much everywhere you take them you don't feel like there's anything you need to really work on so the dog knows how to rest quietly in restaurants knows where to lay at the counter when you check out um, isn't disruptive in vehicles is comfortable pretty much anywhere you take them they're just along for the ride and it's easy to have them with you Uh, if you're still trying to fix big problems it's not time to add the guide work in so uh, once they are Um, confident and comfortable in pretty much every environment you take them in, then you can consider starting to add that harness training. And so I usually start out by teaching them um, just around the neighborhood in low-key environments. So sidewalks provide a very nice, clear, straight line for them. That's where I start to teach um, forward and teach them how to make turns because everything is very linear and very mapped out for them. And then over time, we start to apply those behaviors in different environments. 
um, and get more and more abstract. So we'll go from, you know, walking around the neighborhood where there's sidewalks to walking around a store where there's aisles that are very clear. And then maybe we'll go to somewhere um, like a Costco or something where there are aisles, but it's a lot more big open space. And then we'll build that up to shopping malls and parking lots and things like that. And um, so it's just reading the dog again and waiting until they really seem comfortable. And that's kind of how you know when to progress with each level of harness training too, is when the dog seems confident in what you've taught them thus far, Mm -hmm. that's when you can start to build on it and kind of go by, um, if they're getting things right, like 19 out of 20 times, then you probably are ready to progress. Um, can you talk about Draco a little bit and where he was at that phase? Yeah, so, um, he started harness training July of last year, and he would have been 14 months, um, and he was placed in November, so he was almost 18 months when he got placed, like, you know, less than two weeks shy of his 18-month birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, we started in the neighborhood. Um, he learned how to pull. It was a game. Um, you know, it was just a wait till he pulled as hard as I wanted him to. Praise him like crazy. We did just the same route over and over until he was really comfortable with that. He learned how to pull straight, stop at down curbs, and find the curb out of the street. That's where we started. And then at that point, initial point I would make the turns for him so I'd drop the harness and I would turn and then as we got further along I would have him do the turns Um, and then once he was comfortable in that environment I started uh, building him up to you know sidewalk areas that he'd never been in before making sure he could apply what he'd learned somewhere he hadn't been before and then we just kept building on that going into small stores and bigger stores and he did I don't think I ever felt like he was stressed. Um, He really just kind of took it all in. And by the time he was done with training, I was like, did I really just do all that? Because I felt (laughs) felt like it was effortless. He just really took to it naturally. And I think a lot of that was, again, he grew up with me and you. Mm -hmm. Um, He grew up in this environment. Mm -hmm. And it was just really neat to take him places he hadn't been before and see that he could do it just as well there. Um, but I think as far as like stress levels for the dog, they can learn where they grew up. I think that really helps them. And then of course you have to make sure to get them places that they don't know as well to make sure they really can generalize and apply it. Right. Um, yeah, he just, you know, it was the streets he'd been going on walks on since he was a little puppy. So it was just kind of shifting like, oh, we always stopped at curbs and we always turned and we this and that. Now I have to be the one to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was just a kind of transition of not really power, but you know what I mean? Like letting him know that the responsibility was his now to stop for those curbs. And he didn't, he didn't require a lot of correction. He didn't require really firm handling at all. It was just a lot of, Oh, what a smart boy. You're so smart. What a good boy. And he's like, Oh no, I'm the best boy ever. (laughs) So yeah, he was just really easy. Yeah, that's amazing, and it was just amazing just training with him, which we can um, delve into at another time because, you know, this is definitely getting to be very long, Um, but we'll Mm -hmm. talk about that um, in another segment But of the series. Yeah, it was just amazing to just watch that whole process and to be a part of it. And mm-hmm. the raising was amazing. And I would, like I said, I would definitely do it again. And who knows, like, when I go looking for his successor, if I'm confident enough to own or train, which I think I will mm-hmm. be, um, yeah. I'll be able to, to do that with Draco's help. And I like the fact that Draco isn't a quote-unquote easy dog. I think for me, he's definitely Mm -hmm. ideal. He was what I wanted in a dog, Um, Mm -hmm. which is great. I mean, I 
got what I wanted in a dog without having gone to a program, which was awesome, but... Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going to... I guess pause here and then you'll definitely see what we talk about in the next segment so that is all for now i hope you enjoyed this series and thank you megan for coming on with me and uh we're going to stop here Mm -hmm.